0: If you got your Bibles, and I hope that you do open to Genesis chapter 49. And you might wonder, what in the world does Genesis 49 have to do with Christmas? Well, it's a bit of a stretch. But you know what? All of Scripture is tied to the manger. Because as we've said a, a number of times, we observe the manger of Bethlehem against the backdrop of the cross of Calvary. You see, when, when God enfleshed himself as a human in Bethlehem, that wasn't plan B. It wasn't as if his first plan was this nation that we've been talking about in Genesis that began with Abraham and then Isaac and then his son Jacob, of whom we discussed this morning. That, that he that he started out, and that was that was his plan to rescue children was was through instituting a nation who would be his and he would give them the law and they would obey the law and, and everything would be just fine. No. Jesus was always his plan A. And he never had a plan B. And so all throughout the book of Genesis everything is pointing everything is pointing to The enfleshing of God as a man in the person of Jesus Christ at Bethlehem. Because this God-man would live among us and live a perfect life, perfectly obeying the will of the Father, perfectly obeying the law, achieving what we never could, which is righteousness through the law. And then he was put to death on a cross, all sovereignly ordained by our Father who had a plan to reconcile sinners like us back to himself for his glory. And so yes, Genesis is very much connected to Christmas morning. Last week, we covered the first part of what we're calling Jacob's deathbed, the end of his life, 147 years old. Everything that's happened is all now condensed into this deathbed scene, the first part of the scene we looked at last week in chapter 48, as Jacob adopts and then blesses the two oldest sons of his son, Joseph. So he adopts two of his grandsons, and then blesses them, gives to them the right of the firstborn, the birthright of the firstborn. And then in chapter 49 today, we see Jacob, the patriarch, blessing, literally with his last breath, blessing his 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so once again, we will... See, in this passage, again, very important lessons about God's sovereignty and about our need to trust in God to keep his promises. And so let's read Genesis chapter 49. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning and then make some notes about it. This is the word of God. Then Jacob called his sons and said, "Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob; listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch" Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way. A viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by the spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven from above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning devouring the prey, in the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much for the privilege to call you Father. We thank you so much, Lord, for your divine plan of redemption that we could not have invented if it were up to us and we would not have followed through with it if it were up to us. But you did. Because you are jealous for your glory and your worship and because you love your children, you made a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to you. And we see it even in the nexus of this nation, even in the fledgling nation of Israel as it begins to be formed. We see your plan taking shape. And we see it pointing to Bethlehem. And we see it pointing to Jerusalem. And we see it pointing to a hill outside of Jerusalem, the cross. So Father, I pray this morning that as we seek to unpack this passage of Scripture, God, that you would bring fruit from not my words, but from your word. Father, may may your spirit cause these words to bear fruit in each of my brothers and sisters' lives that are gathered here and listening online and gathered downstairs. Father, may this be fuel to fight against sin as we're warned against the consequences of sin. May it remind us that you are sovereign and in control, even over tribes and nations, certainly over our lives. And may it remind us that you can be trusted in all the promises that you have given us in Scripture, that when it seems as though the circumstances of our current surroundings cannot possibly be linked to good. May we trust you that you are in control and you work in everything out for your glory and our good. Be with us, Father, as we unpack this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two major sections as we see in the 49th chapter of Genesis. The first 27 verses are the, the bulk of the chapter, which is Jacob blessing his sons. And so we're going to look at each of those. And then the latter part of that, verses 28 through the end of the chapter, Jacob makes one final request of his sons, and then he breathes his last, and he dies. Now, before we dive into the weeds of these blessings that... Jacob gives to his sons, I want to make four observations about the structure and the, and the form of these blessings. And I think this is important because understanding, making note of these observations will help us with some of the takeaways that I believe we're to walk away from this passage with. The first observation is that this is a poem. You can see that just on the words of uh, on the page of your Bible that you're holding there. Uh, More than likely, these words are offset, kind of like a poem would be, because they're put to poetical rhyme and verse. This is a poem. Bruce Waltke says this is the first sustained poem, the first lengthy poem in the Bible. Now, this is significant because significant because it lends further credibility to the accurate transmission of these blessings spoken from Jacob from an oral culture to a written culture. As these stories were passed down from generation to generation, from Jacob 400 years later to Moses, the people would be able to remember the exact wording of these blessings because they were put in poetic form. In the same way, we tend to remember the lyrics to songs better than we were, we were able to remember any other kind of document, say a legal document or something like that. We, we remember songs, we remember the words to songs because they're put to rhyme and verse and rhythm. So this helps us trust that these are the very words spoken by Jacob. The second thing that we note here is that... Uh, Jacob is referencing not just his sons, but the tribes that will come from his sons. The way Jacob introduces these blessings in the first two verses, and the way Moses, the writer of the book of Genesis, summarizes this at the end of the blessings, tells us that Jacob intends this not just for his immediate sons, but for the families and the peoples that will come through his sons. It will come after them. In fact, look at verse 1. We see this. Verse 1 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. He says, Gather yourselves together, sons. And so right at the very beginning, we see a very stark contrast between this scene of a father passing on his blessing to his son and the scene that Jacob was a part of when he received the blessing from his father, Isaac. When, when, when uh, Jacob secretly and deceptively dressed up as his hairy brother he, Esau, and secretly and deceptively sought his father Isaac's blessing. Jacob doesn't want that to happen here. These boys are not going to pull that on him. And so he, he makes it very public. Gather yourselves together. And he says, I will tell you. What will happen to you in the days to come? That phrase, in the days to come, literally means in the last days or in the latter days. In the days that come after. And so presumably this tells us in part that the the, the boundary of the fulfillment of these prophecies is not limited to the lives of the sons. that, That these are also meant to refer to the tribes that will come after them. At the end of this, Moses summarizes in verse 28 by saying, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Moses references not just the sons themselves, but the tribes, the people that will come from them for generations. So these blessings that we'll read through are for the tribes, that what they have in view are the tribes of Israel that come from these sons. And so as a result of that, we'll need to consider how the tribes of Israel centuries later would have reacted to these blessings when they heard the stories from Moses. Third observation is that some of these really aren't blessings at all, right? As we read through them, we noted these are not positive. These are negative. And so some of these are not blessings, at least For the sons and the tribes that come from those sons as much as they are curses for those sons. That something bad will happen to them. There there will be a consequence that they and their progeny will have to deal with. And this will remind us that there are consequences for our actions. And then the fourth observation and the one that I kind of want to camp out in a little bit. Before we dive into the weeds of all of these blessings and curses is that these are prophetic and I I want to camp out here a bit because this is going to be critical for us really coming to grips with one of the main takeaways of this chapter these are prophetic now when I say that they are prophetic I mean not only that they speak of things that will happen in the future but they are prophetic in the sense that they they claim to be not just words coming from Jacob's mouth, but words that are coming from the very mouth of God. One of the things that stands out to us as we read this passage is that these are not just Jacob's personal feelings that he then just projects onto his sons, but that he is foretelling God's pronouncement of blessing and curse on each of them. Jacob had established his authority to speak on behalf of the Lord back in chapter 48 in the last chapter that we looked at by referring to God's appearance to him at Bethel. You recall that. He referred to God's appearing to him at Bethel as foundational to him adopting and then blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two oldest sons. And that scene at Bethel also serves as foundational to the words of Jacob in this chapter such that we can conclude that these are more the words of Yahweh than just the parting words of the patriarch himself. As further evidence that these are God's words that Jacob is foretelling comes from the fact that Jacob speaks of stuff here that he could have had no possible idea about whatsoever. He could not have known about other than by revelation from God himself, God revealing these things to him, and then Jacob foretelling those things. Jacob's son, Joseph, reminded us back in chapter 41 that the future can only be known by God. You remember when Joseph was called upon by Pharaoh to interpret his dreams, In that setting, Pharaoh expresses great confidence in Joseph's ability to tell the future through his dreams. But Joseph, if you recall, he corrects Pharaoh. He he corrects him and he says, no, 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 I don't have the ability to do that. The ability to foretell the future only comes by God, is only known by God. But if we pull back the veil just a, just a bit more on this idea of prophecy, of, of telling what the future will hold, we'll again see that one of the, one, one of the great themes of the book of Genesis is God's sovereignty, or, or at least of the story of Joseph. Because we're reminded then that the future can only be known because God has already ordained it. You you see, only God can know the future and only the future can be known because God has already ordained what the future will behold. In other words, how could prophecy even work if God had not already ordained what will happen in the future? Joseph reminds his brothers of this when he finally reveals his identity to them back in chapter 45. In verse 5 of chapter 45, Joseph told his brothers, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then later in verse 8, he said, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God's sovereignty over all of life has been one of the great themes of this whole book. And here we see it again in the patriarch's blessings of his son that he passes on to his sons here in chapter 49. The fact that Jacob is prophesying here about what will happen in the future is dependent on God having already ordained the future. If God had not ordained the future, if, if, if he was not sovereign over The future what the future holds then we could have no confidence in prophecy whatsoever see God's foreknowledge is not simply him looking into the future and seeing and 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 coming to a knowledge of what is going to happen in the future it is him planning the future and sovereign sovereignly ordaining it to be so it couldn't be any other way if God's foreknowledge was was him just knowing what was going to happen in the future without him ordaining the future and, and controlling what will happen in the future, then what confidence could we have that his foreknowledge of the future actually represented what will happen? See, God's foreknowledge presupposes his sovereign plan and ability to make it happen. In the same way, For God to give prophecy to one of his servants to then pass along to his children necessarily means that God has already planned that future. And consequently, the fact that these blessings from the patriarch here are prophetic gives us even greater confidence in the certainty of God's promises to us because God has already ordained the future. To me, that's one of the primary reasons why God includes prophecy in Scripture. There are over 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. 500 of them, about 500 of them, have yet to be fulfilled. But why does God give us prophecy in Scripture? Well, first of all, for with respect to the prophecy that is yet unfulfilled... Prophecy in Scripture serves to tell us what will happen in the future. We're we're, we're given indication of of what will happen in the future. And it's not always crystal clear, and it's not always super detailed, but we're told what is going to happen in the future. But secondly, with respect to the prophecies that have been fulfilled in Scripture, they give us a greater confidence in God's sovereignty. Because how could these things have happened if God were not in control to make them happen? And then thirdly, and and consequently to that, this increased confidence in God's sovereignty that typically um, accompanies fulfilled prophecy as we um, confront it in the word of God, helps us trust God for all of his covenant promises to us. For example, how can we know that he will keep his promises to save sinners like us from judgment if we come to him through faith how can we know that he when, when, when we die how can we know that he will keep that promise and the, that we won't ourselves also be subject to eternal condemnation how do we know he will keep that promise how can we know that he will cause all things to work together for our good and his glory as we've repeated so many times in the story of Genesis in chapters 37 through 50? How do we know that he will keep that promise? How do we know that he is causing all things to, to, be, to work together so that we are conformed to the image of Christ? How, how, do we, how can we be sure that he will return one day to set up his earthly kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth? How can we be sure and confident in these promises? Here's why. Because the God who made these promises in Scripture has filled the pages of Scripture with other prophecies, and he's batting a 1,000 on fulfillment. He has has never missed a beat on that. And so that's the overarching lesson of this first half of chapter 49. As Jacob gives these prophetic and, and poetic blessings and curses, to his sons and to the tribes after them, we're confronted with the, with the glad reality that God is sovereign over these tribes and that he's sovereign over the nations. The, the Israelites, over 400 years later, wandering in the wilderness, hearing these stories from Moses, would have seen that in this story. And it would have bolst, bolstered their faith in Yahweh as Yahweh led them in the wilderness, and pointed them to the promise of a promised land. The presence of these prophecies in this story, some of them having been fulfilled at that point, some of them not having been fulfilled yet at that point. But the mere presence of these prophecies in this story would have reminded those Israelites that God can prophesy the future only because God has already ordained the future. And it would have strengthened their trust in God's promises, including the promise of land, including the promise that he will never leave them, that he will always be present with them, whether it's by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, and even including the promise of a promised Messiah, an anointed one who would come. So that's the big takeaway, and so as we dive now into these prophetic blessings and curses, keep that in mind, that these are meant to bolster our trust in God's promises to keep his promises to us today. Now the order of the sons that Jacob addresses here is is not in birth order, and there honestly seems to be no uh, significant meaning to the order in which they're addressed here. The first six sons that are addressed are all the sons of Leah, even though they weren't born, even in the order in which they're given. The first four are, but Zebulon and Issachar, they're swapped, and actually they come after the four sons that Jacob has through his concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. But those six sons come first, and then the four sons that are his from his two concubines, and then finally at the end, the two sons of Rachel Joseph and Benjamin receive their blessing. So I want to walk through these. We're not going to cover all of them in equal detail, but we're going to do a quick walkthrough and make a few observations about a handful of them. First of all, in verses 3 through 4, we have the, the blessing, I'll put that in air quotes, the blessing given to Reuben. It's not so much a blessing as it is a curse or pronouncement of judgment on him. Jacob begins in verse 3 by recognizing that Reuben uh, physically is his firstborn. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. In other words, that's where you were born. You were the first dude born to me. And so you rightfully deserved the birthright of the firstborn because you were first. And, And the firstborn as a birthright was to receive Double blessing, the double inheritance. And so that's what he rightly deserved. That's what Jacob is saying. But then he abruptly changes course and he talks about how Reuben has forfeited his right of the double blessing of the firstborn. Look at verse 4. He says, unstable as water, you shall not have obedient preeminence. In other words, you shall no longer be my firstborn. Why? Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And it's almost as if he he, he speaks in the third person. He, he turns to the rest of his sons and he says, He went, to, he went up to my couch. This is referring to the, the sin of Reuben with his stepmother Bilhah, as recorded in chapter 35. And, and the writer of 1 Chronicles tells us that this is exactly why Reuben was passed over as the firstborn. Listen to 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2. The sons of Reuben, as he's Um, listing the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, he comes to Reuben, he says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. For he was, past tense, he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, as we covered last week, Ephraim and Manasseh. So that he, Reuben, could not be enrolled as the oldest son though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And we'll see both of those play out in the, in the blessings and, uh, blessings and pr- prophetic blessings that are passed on to both Judah and uh, Joseph. But what is interesting to me is that this happened over 40 years ago. And, and there hasn't been a hint a single word about punishment for Reuben. Nothing at all from Jacob. We're, we're told back in that, in that passage when, when it was just one line that, that, he, that he lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and then it says, and Israel, Jacob, saw it. And so he knew about it, but he didn't say a word. Nothing for 40 years had been said Or done, at least nothing recorded in scripture. And yet here on Jacob's deathbed, this evil sin from Reuben's past is brought back to life. And he is given great punishment, severe punishment for it. He forfeited his birthright. He will no longer be the firstborn of Israel. That's now gone to Joseph by way of his two sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And not only are there consequences for Reuben, but even more tragically, there are consequences for the tribe that will come from Reuben. The tribe that will come from him will endure this punishment as well. Bruce Waltke notes that no prophet, no judge, no priest, and no king ever comes from the tribe of Reuben. There are a couple of lessons that I want us to draw out from this pronouncement of judgment on Reuben. The first is a warning against sin. It's impossible not to see that. It's a warning against sin. Reuben's curse from his father reminds us that sin is serious and always bears consequences for us and for those around us. And while this seems, on the surface, it seems like a curse to Reuben and and his tribe, and it is, when we look at this from the perspective of the nation, the nation of Israel, especially centuries later, it, this curse would actually be seen as a blessing to the nation as it, as it warned the Israelites against a lack of self-control. What, what does Jacob say to his son? He says in verse 4, he says, you're, in, you're unstable as water. You pour water out on a, on, on a table. Does it stay in a nice, neat little circle? No, it's, it goes everywhere. It goes wherever it wants to go. Re- Reuben's, uh, Jacob says, Reuben, you are as unstable as water. You have no self-restraint. You give yourself permission to do whatever your flesh desires. And, and so the, Israel would have learned from this, and, and by the way, so should we, that a lack of self-restraint, a lack of self-control, especially sexually, will lead to dire consequences for us and for those nearest to us. So That's the first lesson from the curse on Reuben, a warning against sin. Secondly, it's a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder of the gospel, especially when we look at it through the lens of the New Testament. How do I get there? And this is going to be important because we're going to, we're going to see this in a lot of the other um, curses on some of the other sons as well so how do we get the gospel from this curse on reuben and on the tribe that comes after him well there's a biblical principle that's being reinforced here in reuben's prophecy and that is that the sins of the father will be visited on his children we see this principle in several places in scripture exodus chapter 20 exodus 34 numbers 14 deuteronomy 5 deuteronomy 24 it's all over the place And here it's reinforced that God extends the punishment for Reuben's sin to the tribe that will come after him for generations. Now, some might say, well, that's not fair. They didn't do the crime. Why should they pay the fine, right? But then we're reminded that actually this is how original sin works in us as well. When Adam sinned in the garden, all of humanity, for the rest of time, paid the price. Bible scholars call this the doctrine of federal headship. We learned about it back in Romans chapter 5 when we were going through the book of Romans. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. As if we were there in the garden sinning right along with him. And so the doctrine of original sin is not just that we inherit a propensity to sin, but we inherit the actual guilt of Adam's sin because we were in Adam as our federal head, sinning right along with him in the garden. And again, some will say, cry foul. It's like, I wasn't in the garden. I I, I wasn't even a sparkle in my mama's eye. I wasn't there, and I, I couldn't have sinned in the garden. So why would I be held accountable as if I had? Well, the doctrine of federal headship has both bad news and good news. See, its bad news is that we have sinned in Adam, and as a result of that, we are therefore guilty. But its good news is that we have been made righteous in Christ, and therefore have been declared justified before him. Listen to how the Apostle Paul works this out in Romans chapter 5, I would commend all of Romans chapter 5 for you to, to work through this and flesh this idea of federal headship out. But just listen to verses 18 through 21. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's the sin in the garden by Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is, all men who will come to faith in Christ. That's the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 19, he says it again. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's the obedience of Christ going to the cross at Calvary, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says, in Adam, as our federal head as in the flesh, our federal head in the flesh, we all sinned. And as a result, inherit just condemnation for that sin. But conversely, in Christ, as our federal head in faith, we've all been made righteous through his righteous obedience, credited to us by faith. And so when we see the tribe of Reuben here, that for generations after him endure the consequences of Reuben's sin, is held accountable for Reuben's sin. We are reminded how we too are held accountable for the sin of the first Adam, but are justified by the righteousness of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. This isn't the only time that we'll see this idea of corporate accountability on the part of a tribe on behalf of the son. This is the first of many times that we'll see this in this chapter. But each time, I think we ought to be reminded that through the lens of the New Testament, these are reminders to us of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Because we have not only a federal head in the flesh in whom we have sinned and are guilty, but we have a federal head in righteousness as well. Moving on now to Simeon and Levi, the second and third sons, who are given a blessing, air quotes, blessing from their father, Jacob. Uh, These two sons are given a curse from their father because of their violence against the men of Shechem, as recorded in that story in chapter 34 of Genesis. Jacob here, their father, calls them men of violence, men of anger, men of wrath. Because they killed all the men of that city merely out of vengeance. And as a consequence of their violence and unrestrained anger, Jacob pronounces judgment on them in verse 7. He says, I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. And that's exactly what happens to both of these tribes. First, with respect to Simeon, when Moses, at the end of his life, at the end of uh, Moses' ministry to the nation of Israel at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, before he hands over the the, the, the the reign of leadership to Joshua such that they will subsequently cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land and take possession of the land. At the end of Moses' life, Deuteronomy chapter 33, he's, he's pronouncing blessings on all of the tribes of Israel as they go in and possess the land and take inheritance of what was promised to them he lists the blessings to all of the tribes except for Simeon. Simeon is the only tribe that is left out of Moses' blessings. Then, when they do get into the land, and Joshua in Joshua chapter 19, after he's driven out the people, after he's defeated Jericho, and all of that stuff happens, they're dividing the land amongst them. Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, is relegated to just a few cities that are within the territory of Judah. And eventually, over time, the tribe of Simeon basically gets absorbed by the tribe of Judah and ultimately disappears from history. The tribe of Levi was also scattered. And when Joshua, as we said, divides the land among the tribes Um, after they conquer that land, uh, Levi doesn't get any land at all. The tribe of Levi doesn't get any land at all. Instead, what they get are some cities that are scattered throughout all of the tribe's territories, throughout the entire land. But although the tribe of Levi doesn't get any land, the tribe of Levi does get a magnificent inheritance. And their inheritance is that they would be set aside to serve Yahweh. Yahweh. So the tribe of Levi becomes the tribe of priests unto the Lord. In fact, both Moses and Aaron come from the tribe of Levi, as do all of the priests who serve in both the tabernacle and the wilderness wanderings, as well as in the temple, even in Jesus' day. All of them are from the tribe of Levi. And so we see here an example of sovereign grace, that although both Simeon and Levi are equally guilty for the massacre at Shechem one tribe ends up disappearing into anonymity while the other receives the honor of being the tribe of priests of the Lord and the only way to explain that is sovereign grace how does paul quote the lord in romans chapter 9 verse 15 i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Praise the Lord for his sovereign electing grace to have mercy on sinful men and women like us. Then we come to Judah in verses 8 through 12, and immediately we see that Judah is handled differently than all of the other sons It says in verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, meaning you will always be at war. This is the prophecy of enduring conflict for Judah, which we see in their history. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. They'll praise you and they'll bow down before you. So Judah will be a leader among the tribes. And so this speaks to the authority of the tribe of Judah. In verse 9, Judah is likened to a lion. And, and the lion was symbolic of uh, power and might as well as a symbol of kingship and authority. Kingship is also symbolized in verse 10 when Jacob says, The, the, shepter, the, excuse me, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff From between his feet. This is a prophecy that a king will come from the tribe of Judah, but not just any king, a line of kings, and the reign of this king from Judah will never end. This is a prophecy that was confirmed in the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel, and fulfilled in part by King David, who comes from the tribe of Judah, but ultimately and completely, this points to Jesus Christ. This points to the Messiah, a king who would come, who would be born, the lion of Judah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the king whose reign would never end. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Uh, the King James and the New American Standard, if you have that translation of the English Bible, they will interpret this phrase, uh, until tribute comes to him, as until Shiloh comes. The Hebrew of that verse is very complicated. My understanding of this is that until Shiloh comes is a better, better literal reading of that text, but it does not refer to the city of Shiloh, which was filled with pagan worship. Instead, it refers to a person. The root word for Shiloh is shalah, which means at rest, or to be at peace, to be at ease. It's, the, it's very similar to the root word from which we get the word shalom, which means peace itself. And wholeness. And so this is referring to one who brings peace or rest. It's referring to the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled this prophecy and brought peace to sinners and rest to those trying to earn salvation. This messianic prophecy, embedded in the blessing to the tribe of Judah, is a reminder to us of what this whole thing is about. This is not just about a patriarch passing on a blessing to his sons and his boys that they would have a good life. This is a God unveiling his plan of redemption for sinners like you and I. That's the 30,000-foot level. Let's don't lose sight as we get into the weeds of all this that is happening, that what God is doing here is he is rolling out his plan to redeem lost sinners like you and I through the Christ that will come from him, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then look at how Judah is incredibly blessed. The remainder of the blessing to uh, Judah here in these verses um, has to do with the prosperity and the the blessing of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Jacob employs the use of hyperbole and exaggeration here to demonstrate how Judah's tribe will be a blessed people. And this reminds us of how the church is blessed with the presence of Christ and the Spirit today. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. If you're going to tie up to a donkey to a vine, it better be a big vine. This is exaggeration. That this is a humongous vine, big enough that you can tie a donkey to it and it won't pull away. Most vines that I've seen would not hold a donkey if you tie it to it, right? So this is exaggeration about the, uh, the blessing of this land, this huge vine that grows there. He goes on, he says, so blessed you'll be so blessed that he washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Again, this is figurative language. It's not that the tribe of Judah does their laundry in wine. But the idea here is that they are so blessed that there's so much wine, it's flowing everywhere in Judah, that it's as if they could do their laundry in it if they wanted to. It would be that plentiful. Also in verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. I guess that means he looks nice. I don't don't know. That's maybe Hebrew language saying this guy looks really nice. But this is symbolic of uh, the beauty of Judah being described here and symbolic of the prosperity of Judah. And so the picture here is of a tremendously blessed and prosperous tribe. One from whom a king shall come. And this prophetic blessing over Judah was fulfilled in part by King David. But ultimately this points to the complete fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in the coming of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph, the lion of the tribe of Judah. All right, I'm going to pick up the pace here. Next comes Zebulon. He's going to be blessed because he lives next to the shore. Then Issachar, who is scolded by his father Jacob. Apparently he is so enamored with ease and rest that he ends up becoming a slave. And there's evidence that the tribe of Issachar does become servants to the inhabitants of Canaan. After this come the four sons of the concubines, first Dan in verses 16 through 18. He's described as a snake, a viper, or a servant. This doesn't mean that he's sneaky. This, this is a reference to an animal that is, that is small and always lives alone, but can strike back, can take down much bigger prey, and that's definitely something that plays out in the tribe of Issachar in the history of Israel. Then there's Gad. Uh, he's, he's known as the raider who raids and is raided. The, the, the Hebrew word gad sounds very much like the word for raid. And that word is used four times in this six word Hebrew verse here. And so gad is raided, but he fights back and he raids back. Then there's Asher who will enjoy rich food and royal delicacies a reference to the fertile land that they inherit on the western slopes of the Galilean highlands. And then there is Naphtali, who is described as a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns, which probably speaks to uh, the, the nomadic movements of that tribe. And then all that's left are the two sons of Rachel to be blessed, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph's blessings in verses 22 through 26 demonstrate that he receives that double blessing, right because his sons Ephraim and Manasseh have been elevated to the place of sons of Israel and they have been given the birthright of being the firstborn and so they get the double blessing and as we read through Jacob's blessing here it is i mean the dude is really blessed more than any of his sons he receives the blessing of the firstborn while Judah receives the authority and a king a chief will come from him as the chronicler tells us in first chronicles 5 Joseph is described metaphorically here as a a fruitful bough or vine, which refers to fertility for the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, We're told that the branches of this bough, this vine, runs over a wall, which refers to the expansion of the territory of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. When verse 23 says the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, this is figuratively referring to when Joseph's brothers mistreated him and stole the robe from him and threw him in a pit and left him there to die. But even in that state, We're told by Jacob that he was helped by God. He recognized that it was God that helped him. Look at verse 24. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone or the rock of Israel. And then finally, the youngest Benjamin is blessed in verse 27. He's depicted as a ravenous wolf who hunts and devours his prey. And this refers to his bravery and his warrior skills in battle, and that of him and the tribe that comes after him. And from this tribe, we get the likes of a man named King Saul, the first king of the, the unified nation of Israel, a man who stood sho- head and shoulders above everyone else and led in great battles on behalf of Israel. His son, Jonathan, also was from this same tribe of Benjamin. He defeated an entire garrison of Philistines in 1 Samuel 13. And then another Saul in the New Testament, the Saul who would become Paul, the apostle Paul was also from the tribe of Benjamin. And the chapter closes then with Jacob expressing his great confidence in God's Promises. On his deathbed, with his with his dying breath, he expresses great confidence in God's promises by pointing his sons back to the promised land. He commands them to bury them bury him on the plot of land that his grandfather Abraham had bought in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, that they bought that Abraham had bought from Ephron the Hittite. The story of Abraham purchasing that field is recorded back in chapter 23. And when we covered that, we noted that Ephraim's field that Abraham bought, though it is small, it was the first rightfully owned piece of land in Canaan for Abraham's family. Though it was this small burial plot, it was land nonetheless. It was a sliver of a promise in a land of promise. A land that now beckons to the Israelites as they are in Egypt. Now Jacob's family has abandoned all of their land in Canaan and had migrated down to Egypt to escape the famine. And in Egypt, their family will remain for the next 430 years. But that plot of land that Granddad had bought over 150 years prior was still there. Again, beckoning to them from Canaan that there was, in fact, a promised land, that there was an inheritance that was part of God's covenant promises to them. And it included that land. That was part of God's promise. Buried there were his grandfather Abraham, his grandmother Sarah, his father Isaac, his mother Rebekah, and Jacob's first wife Leah. And Jacob reminds his son that he is to be buried there as well. Jacob's dying request to be buried in the land of Canaan was a reminder to his sons that God's covenant promises didn't end in Egypt. Egypt was just a pit stop in God's plans for Israel. And to his dying breath, Israel was trusting in God's plans. And so, church, we learn from this chapter a number of things. First, that God is sovereign in these tribes. He's sovereign in nations. He's sovereign over you and I. Have you come to grips with that? To recognize that he is in control is that something that brings a balm to your soul, or are you still wrestling with what that means? He is in control no matter what is happening around you and in this country and in your family. He has not lost control, He has not ignored you, He has not left you. He is still in control. And he loves you. And he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign. He is in control. And we see that in these tribes. Secondly, God can prophesy because only he knows the future. And only the future can, be, the future can only be known because God has already ordained it. Let the doctrine and the reality of his sovereignty and the fact that he knows, not only knows the future, but ordains it. Let those two truths strengthen your trust in God's promises to you and I today. His promises to save those who come to him through faith in Christ, His promise to work all things out for our good and His glory his promise to conform us to the image of Christ, that our confidence in these promises and so many others are bolstered by God's perfect record when it comes to fulfillment of prophecy. And like Jacob, may our faith remain rock solid to the very end. In fact, may it strengthen as we age, such that on our deathbeds we too would be pointing to those Pointing those who are gathered around us to the hope of heaven and the promise of reconciliation to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh God, would you do just that? We're so grateful for these stories that you've recorded for us in this book. These Old Testament narratives that remind us that when you make a promise it's as if it's already been fulfilled. May you enlarge and strengthen our faith that you will fulfill all of your promises. And may that growing faith and your sovereignty fuel a life of worship and obedience and faithfulness for your glory as long as you put oxygen in our lungs, that to our dying breath, we will trust you. And we will long to see you face to face. Until then, cause us, faithful God, to persevere in this faith, to trust you. And I pray, Father, for those in our church who are struggling in so many different ways, whether it's health, physical health, spiritual health, mental health, whether it is a virus or disease, or whether it is the challenge of a loved one, who is failing in their health and on the cusp of heaven themselves, whether it is children who may seem wayward that we long for and pray for, whether it is hopes and dreams that seem to be dashed, Lord, would you bolster the faith of Those who are here and those who are downstairs and those who are at home, those who call New Branch their faith family, Lord, would you bolster their faith in a faithful God who will fulfill each and every one of his promises. Father, we thank you for that testimony from your word. And we ask that, Father, that faith would fuel our faithfulness to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.